This is episode 91 of The New Disruptors. Plug me in with Mata Zepeda. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is made possible in part through the support of 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Listeners to The New Disruptors can get a $99 power pack of services for free by visiting 99designs.com slash disruptors. That's numeral 9, numeral 9, design. Disruptors. Thanks also to our Patreon backers, Ben Wordmuller, Brian Clark, and Gravity Fish for supporting us directly. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that knows on which lawn the grass is greener. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. Mata Zepeda is the co-founder and CEO of Switchboard, a site that lets you ask for what you need and offer what you have within a trusted community. It's a way to more efficiently interconnect generosity, and it's sometimes described as Craigslist without the creeps. I'm used to reading personal histories that have windy roads, but Mata's can't be summarized. Suffice it to say that she's a writer, calligrapher, entrepreneur, and student of knowledge who's worked as a reporter and teacher. We're at her offices in Portland at Whedon and Kennedy's Portland Incubator Experiment, and uh, we're not sitting in a nest, but we are in Whedon Kennedy's office. Mata, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And I said your, your background defies summarization because you've done a million things, but I think there are themes in this. Um, I, I want to ask you about your childhood because uh, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. You grew up in Santa Fe. Santa Fe is to Eugene what Eugene is like. I can't think of the stodgiest city, like uh, like uh, the, the financial district of New York. Like Santa Fe is to Eugene as Eugene is to that. So I can't even imagine what Santa Fe is like to be surrounded by such creative people. Yeah, it's so funny you even mentioned that because my mother after she moved from our childhood home in Santa Fe, moved to Eugene. Oh, yeah. We have an underground railroad between that and Santa Santa Cruz, Santa Fe, (laughs) Boulder. Yes. Ithaca. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The main locations in my mother's life, uh, Berkeley, Santa Fe, Vancouver, and Eugene. So and Sedona, Arizona. Oh God, so if that right. doesn't paint the picture for my childhood, I don't know what I, possibly. I know that transit route. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's good. But you it's you grew trip. up among so your your parents were uh, your parents were a cellist and painter. Yeah, and you grew up among artists, and that can warp you for life because it makes you think that it's normal to be creative and not worry about being created uninhibited in the expression of your imagination. I know. I mean, I think looking back on it, it was such a gift. Santa Fe at the time, this was kind of in the late eighties, early nineties. 90s, it wasn't as commercial as it was now. So you could really eke out a living selling a couple of paintings every month. Um, and so my childhood, when I look back on it, was very charmed in many respects. You know, my dad had a studio on Canyon Road that he could afford, which now those properties are, you know, $5 million. You know, I would go fetch him at the local tapas bar to come home for dinner. My There were flamenco dancers in our house and, you know, African drummers. And when I look back on it, it, it was just completely charmed. But it has taken taken me a long time to to come full circle and realize just how much I got out of that experience. So it wasn't a commune, but you had a lot of community and, and communal living. People came and went. You had a community of people you knew and trusted. That's exactly right. And I think... Um, you know, we, what's so special about art, artist communities and communities like that is they function on barter. They're quite often barter economies. So I have memories of walking into furniture shops and my father would bring a couple of canvases and he would trade his paintings for my bed. I mean, I had this beautiful bed when I was growing up and my father traded it for a piece of his artwork. And when I think back to how many experiences we received and things we received as a result of people thinking creatively about economies, it's pretty striking. We had a credit at a, a sushi restaurant for about two years because oh we absolutely couldn't have afforded to eat sushi every other week. But my father gave the owner a couple of paintings. And I just remember every time we walked in, you know, the balance would decrease. But there's, there's an old joke. I think it might even be. It's uh, I don't even want to quote Woody Allen anymore. But it's an old Woody Allen joke about something like you can have your health, but the butcher doesn't say, "Oh, you look so healthy here of a steak." But I'm like, if you're an artist, you can say, "Oh, I have some paintings," and and people accept that as value because they value the creativity, even if they don't necessarily plan to sell them. It still it imparts this inherent value of creation that they're willing to accept. Completely. 
Yeah, and Joseph Conrad talks about this a little bit and, um, you know, just how the nature of an artist is someone who who sees the world as a place of abundance and generosity. And, you know, one of the very formative books in my life is Lewis Hyde's The Gift. I don't know if you've read it, but it, it's all about how creative the creative class tends to have a very strong understanding of generosity and gift economies and how that actually powers the universe so there's a very interesting group in the bay area called bay bucks that's uh, started over in uh, oakland all they're trying to expand and it's the uh, it's a barter business to business barter that wants to expand into uh into consumer hmm. but instead of like the ithaca bucks and other systems where you exchange you it's almost a marketing tool in this case they want to create an actual economy based on surplus availability of services which could be any Anything that anybody in the system is willing to value and then and then use, and it's it's taxable, it's trackable, it's totally legal within the IRS definitions, but it shifts the value from a pure cash-based economy into allowing people to use productivity or the creation of something that that has that is instantly value within a network because people can cash out and use it. Completely, yeah. I mean, I think those types of economies are really fascinating, and I think when we talk about the sharing economy, it's important to make a distinction between authentic sharing and the sharing economy that has a layer of pretty aggressive capitalism on top of it. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think what you're describing is kind of trying to get back to that first foundational level of what sharing actually means. Yeah, I wrote a a cover story for The Economist almost two years ago called The Sharing Economy, and I felt bad about it later. I didn't pick the headline precisely, and I don't think it was inaccurate at the time, but now when you have things like, and we'll we'll get to Switchboard, of course, and talk about that, or Bay Bucks, or... um, true peer-to-peer sharing versus that capitalist overlay. So Uber is a form of the sharing economy. It is not sharing. It's an, it's like a they create a market in which they arbitrage the value that people are willing to pay on transportation. They're a transportation provider with a technology backend. So they're not sharing anything, but they got lumped in with like relay rides where people are sharing their cars to other people and there's a thin layer of facilitation between it. It seems like it's a big distinction to make. Very much, yeah. I mean, I think one of the questions that I tend to ask when I'm faced with sharing economy, ostensibly sharing economy products is where's the community that is born? So if there is no community, for example, with Uber, you have a one-on-one transaction between the driver and the passenger, and then you have a corporation that's profiting off of that. And in between, there really isn't a sustainable and kind of thriving and altruistic and generous generous community in between. So the scale is one-to-one, and then... The, on the other end of the spectrum, you have billions upon billions that you know Uber is yielding. But it's interesting to look at, um, you know, that's the spectrum that 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 transaction exists on. It's one on one and it's gigantic. And in the middle, I think we're missing a lot. You've heard of the um, this European car company or car group called is it blah blah or blah blah blah? It's hilarious, and but they are um, they are a peer to peer. They just raised some huge amount of money and. Um, they are. They don't hook up uh, like cab drivers or people who drive someone for money. It's a I'm going this direction, come with me kind of thing, and that seems to have a very different orientation. Or you go a level deeper, you say Airbnb versus couch surfing. And yeah. couch surfing, um, they're now a B corp, and they went through a bunch of transition a couple of years ago. But they're still fundamentally they were, and I think remain about community. That the actual place to stay is incidental to the fostering of community and blah, I forget if it's blah, blah, or blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> they're somewhere in the middle. They're a commercial group. They're not nonprofit, but they are fostering relationships between people because they're asking you to get in someone's car and go along with them as opposed to, I need to get from point A to B, come pick me up at point A and take me to point B. Totally. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Um, especially, you know, I ask people constantly how they use technology. It's just kind of my pet question. I love to know how people use technology, and I love to get stories, anecdotal stories. And very often, you know, I'll sometimes give talks and I'll ask people about their experiences on Craigslist or on couch surfing or on Airbnb. And invariably, the, yeah, the, the distinction between couch surfing and Airbnb, when I ask people for sto- just stories about their experiences using these products, there will constantly be someone in the room who says, oh, yeah, and I couch surfed at this vegan co-op and we ended up making friends and then they suggested that I go here because there isn't a layer of um, the financial transaction because it, the commodity is generosity. It's not, it's not um, you know, m- monetary. And then 
I've never heard a story like that from Airbnb, you know? And so it's just interesting what, what anecdotes and stories come out of the way that we use technology because with Airbnb, I'm giving you money. And so I get a room and, and kind of the transaction is, is done with. So Lewis Hyde talks a lot about this, how, um, money immediately commodifies a transaction, whereas generosity and gift giving, it, it creates a, um, an endless cycle of it circulating within communities. Well, as you talk about this, I realize I just did my first Airbnb, which is bizarre, I guess, because uh, and I travel just enough that I should be doing it more. And it was absolutely lovely. It was this place in Malibu. It was like an old hippie place and it had a pool. And it was fantastic from beginning to end. There were ants, but it's California. It's always ants. But the, the, and so I had the perfect experience, but it doesn't bleed into anything else. And I posted a positive review and that bleeds out a little bit. Right. But I realized as you're saying this, I'm thinking, oh, it's like islands versus a continent, right? Every Airbnb experience, no matter how good, every Uber experience, no matter how good, is a one little island, and they never connect. There's no boats. But you're trying to build, and what you talk about is trying to build these interconnections. So we're building land. We're Hawaii, and we have lava flowing. We're making more and more land and building space between the islands so that we're all one giant. You know, We don't all have to participate in it, but we're what, those who do are building new landmass of community. Totally. And I think it's so interesting that you say, um, I just stayed in Malibu. It was an Airbnb. It had ants. So imagine, <laughs> like, do a thought experiment where, um, let's say, like, we both know Andy Bayo, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say I was living in Malibu, right? And Andy was like, Glenn, you should go stay with Mata. If you were to retell that story and you were staying with me, you would never have said, I was staying with this stranger, you know, a friend of a friend in Malibu. She let me stay in her house. It was amazing. There were ants. Exactly. You would never say that because you would be like, that would, that's just craziness. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you've received some act of generosity that it's not about you rating my place on whether it has (laughs) ants. It's about recognizing how lovely the world is. I I will point out because I am the kind of person I am, I did not post the ants in the review. I did tell the owner, I said, you may want to work on this, but, but it's it was California. Dis- it was disappointing, not yes. delightful. You know? That's right. Right. Although uh, I, I don't mind the ants so much. That's a good point. <laughs> it was spiders. That would be different. Yeah. Um, so there's, so to take a piece of your biography, I want to posit something about you, which is that you like to rewire your brain would be what I would say. Uh-huh. Reading it, is that like once you get into some configuration, uh, because there's people who go from thing to thing to thing and they haven't figured out what they want to do. There's other people who are, it's like Katamara Damacy. You're rolling and you're gathering and accumulating and you're becoming, you're, you can't, because uh, I put myself in that category, you can't say, oh, Mata is blah. There's no way someone can stick a label on you. But at the same time, everything you do seems to inform and inform and inform. So I would love to talk at least briefly about calligraphy. I love calligraphy. I've done a tiny amount. I was a graphic designer of some hand skills. And I always admire people who, where you take the, the focus and attention and can produce that, uh, that fine work. But um, it's the hand connection that I'm interested in mm. more than the work that you felt compelled to do something that brought you, you worked and you lived among artists, but you felt compelled to devote the time to and then pursue for a while a part of your profession, doing something with your hands. How satisfying is that to you to work with your hands? Is that something that you need in your life or something you always sought out? I don't know that it's something I always sought out. You know, the background of it is I went to Reed College. I feel like half of your guests have gone to Reed College. (laughs) Um, And Lloyd Reynolds started the calligraphy program there. So he started it in the 50s, and then it was taken over by uh, the Trappist monk Robert Palladino. And it was Palladino with whom Jobs studied and who, you know, credits the design of the Mac. And so I started to study calligraphy at Reed because of that tradition. And then very accidentally, I became a, cl- a cl- professional calligrapher. I was really bad at traditional copper plate calligraphy. <laughs> and I would go, I studied it for many years. And I was like, you know, screw it. Like, I can't replicate these letter forms. And it's yeah. really anxiety producing. So I created my own kind of contemporary calligraphy around 2009. And this was just when the wedding industry was exploding. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge market for contemporary calligraphers. And so I ended up doing it initially commercially. And then over the years have transitioned to doing mostly tattoos because it's very portable. Mm-hmm. And because the personal stories of um, you know loss and celebration and life change around why, the motivations of why people get tattoos really interest me. So, um, Are you tat- permanent or... Yeah, permanent tattoos. Yeah. So are you a tattoo artist as well? Or I you don't do art for tattoos. I will design them and then that they go and get them. Yeah. Well, I was asking about hands on. That's that's even more. You know, that's one level deeper, as it were. It's really great. Yeah. I mean, um, wow. part of the transaction of the tattoo stories is I do the tattoo and then the client has to sh- give photographs and talk about the story of why they got. 
got it. Oh, man. And so people have really incredible stories, you know, of losing a child or celebrating, um, you know, a parent or a grandmother. They're all so heartfelt and authentic. And at the end of the day, you know, I was I, I started doing envelopes that were just getting thrown away in the trash. And then I realized that there could be this very permanent, like, lifelong relationship with this person because I would be on their skin. So that's what happened. But I think in terms of calligraphy, you know, Lloyd Reynolds was really rooted in like the Zen Buddhist tradition. And the more that I do calligraphy, the more astounded I am at, at just the connection. And, and it's actually just has to do with breath, um, mm-hmm. that calligraphy is a meditative practice. So the more that I teach and the more that I do it, as I look back on my, you know, six year career as a calligrapher, it was just hours and hours of meditation that happened to be expressed through my hand. That is fascinating. My wife is a social dancer and teaches social dance, like waltz and foxtrot and a b- bunch of other stuff. And she says dance is a meditation for her. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you can find in these, aspect, I mean, I think they always have to be a physical activity. Some people talk, so Linda Stone famously talks about, um, oh, what's the term she uses? It's like sleep apnea, but it's, um, it's like a, an apnea of working in front of a computer, you forget to breathe. Mm-hmm. And she's worked with on studies and, and reports on studies about you you forget to breathe. And that seems to me an incredibly profound thing that you're sitting in front of there and you're so engaged in something that is that is not real that it takes you out of your body so much so that you're that you're you've created a um, a syndrome for yourself mm-hmm. that actually hurts you. And that's terrifying. Isn't it? <laughs> yes. I mean, and especially how for how long we spend in front of screens in our lives. I mean, I recently taught a calligraphy workshop here at Wyden and Kennedy for their studio team of creatives. You know, these are Wyden and Kennedy for people who don't know. It's kind of the largest privately held advertising company in the world. And they coined Just Do It. And the creatives oftentimes have had backgrounds in printmaking or hands-on artistic crafts, but now they're in front of their computer. So we go upstairs, we do this calligraphy workshop. And at the beginning, everyone is like, their bodies are contorted (laughs) and they're like in half and no one knows how to stand and sit. And by the end of it, it was incredible to see, to just watch them actually breathe and become mindful of, you know, okay, this is where my pen is on the inhale this is how I'm expressing the letter on the exhale. And, and it, to me, it was just really transformative to see people get in touch with that again. That's totally fantastic. And this yeah. is, I mean, my grounding as a graphic designer was working with ruling pens, which, which have no, or, and then exact, or uh, not exact, but rapidographs is I learned to train myself to, uh, I could, it wasn't a calligrapher, but I could draw a perfect straight line without a straight edge. And, and that is a form of meditation because if you breathe at the wrong time, if you don't control the pace, so you have this entire hand motion, arm muscle training memory thing, and you have to be able to do that and draw that line. And you don't have to do that on a computer. You hold the shift key down and click and it's a straight line. It's very interesting. Well, you know, there's, we have to pivot at some point into talking about where all of this leads to, but I am always fascinated by antecedents because I think you see the seeds of, um, the seeds of what you do informs, you know, what you become. And, uh, uh, we could leap ahead to switchboard. I know there's a lot of stuff in between, which you're welcome to circle back and tell me more, more how it comes about. But I know actually switchboard itself, um, as a place of, um, of community to share asks and offers, uh, that came out of an experiment, or not an experiment, but that came out of something else. It wasn't like this didn't leap into your head from your background. Well, tell me about the thing that you did that led directly into, into Switchboard. I mean, I wish I could tell you it was one thing. It was probably just living in the world enough and being like angry and frustrated about how it exists. Um, I mean, so, you know, first I should credit my co-founder, Sean Lerner, because anything that I, I do when I talk about Switchboard, it's, it was very much this collaborative effort between the two of us, and we both happen to find each other in this very crazy way on Twitter and share the same passion and oh problem. Oh my gosh. So this is a Twitter, co- Twitter formed company. It's a Twitter formed company. Um, it, it's a, you know, kind of a very beautiful story that like kind of meta illustrates what Switchboard is about. But, um, I started it with, uh, so I, yeah, as I said, I went to Reed college and I started on the alumni board there and what I was seeing was students were graduating with a ton of student loan debt. And they it, it sounds so obvious that sometimes when I talk about Switchboard, it's like it sounds like the most elementary thing in the world. They didn't have a place to ask for help. So they didn't they had an alumni database, so they could search all fields of this clunky, horrible alumni database, but they couldn't just express their needs and say, I am looking for a mentor in journalism. 
and send that call out into the universe and see who responded. And that's, to me, how I've received everything in my life has been, I mean, this back to my father, he walked in with a canvas and said, I am, you know, I am asking for a credit at the sushi restaurant and here is my painting. So I'm, I grew up with this ethos that the universe that shall provide is just a question of asking for what you need. Students didn't have a place to ask for what they need. And so um, it was impossibly frustrating because you thought, like, it, it was just clear that if they could ask for what they needed, the universe would respond because the network of Reed alumni existed. So it's a very, very long story, but essentially what happened was is it was clear there only two things need to happen to build a community. People need to be able to ask for what they need, and then people need to be able to offer what they have to give. And it's completely antithetical to the way that we're currently using social media. It's, um, you know, right now, kind of Twitter and Facebook and these attention economies, their purpose is really quantity. It's just volume. It's just a volume game. It's how many retweets, how many likes, how many, um, how many favorites, how, ma- how much volume can you get? And an ask and offer is very different because it's incredibly high quality. So someone can ask for a job and they can receive a job. And yes. in that wow. moment, your entire life's trajectory is changed. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the way that Switchboard came about was essentially sort of understanding that at the end of the day, these two verbs are the foundation of human civilization. They're the reason we thrive as human beings. They're what makes us feel good. Um, they create bonds that are stronger than anything that we know. And so I put, put a call out on Twitter saying... I'm looking for a developer, and um, Sean Lerner, who graduated eight years after I did from Reed, answered the call, and he said, I'm, I'm, have a, I have a picture of sangria, nothing to do tonight. <laughs> We'd never met. We didn't know each other, and um, I was in Italy at the time. He was in California, and just over months, we chatted over Skype about what we wanted to build for this community. Yeah. We ended up building it, and then we ended up building it for Reed initially, and then much to our complete surprise, Hundreds of other communities said, we want you to build switchboards for us. Oh, how did that spread, though? People, people from Reed said, I have this amazing thing in my alumni network. You should see this thing. Uh, it's like the Facebook, except it's a community thing instead of about uh, baby pictures. Totally, yeah. I mean, Ellie Blue, who you've interviewed, yes. she started a switchboard for the Women's Cycling Network. Oh, that's great. So she yes. was a user at Reed and then realized how it could be used to create a community of women cyclists around the world. So it was that. It was people would use it at Reed and then say, oh, my God, my church could totally use this. This nonprofit could totally use this. Um, a volunteer organization I work with could, could use this. Summer camps and meat collectives. And, I mean, any, any group of any trust community can use Switchboard. And so it was from those initial customer or users who were so completely astounded at what was happening on yeah. Reed Switchboard that they wanted to implement it in their community. Now, is there, is there discussion or is it really purely limited to acts of generosity? I mean, there's discussion in so far as sometimes you'll have a question from someone like, for example, we recently, on Oberlin's switchboard, someone recently asked, should I go to law school? Mm-hmm. Ask for advice. Right. Should oh, I go to law oh, school? yeah. And what's great about that is a discussion unfolded in the comments, and it's archived and searchable, so the next person who has that question can now tap into that brain trust of information and find what they need. But it's not a forum in the sense that, you know, when the job is done, the job is done, and we mm. move on with our lives, instead of just this constant conversation um, that really doesn't seem to have an end or a purpose. Switchboard is very um, results-driven. You have a modality that you've chosen, and that's what you're doing. I was thinking about this in terms of, like, FreeCycle. Now, FreeCycle is amazing, but it is the most, like, um, fascist organization in terms of rules, and it depends, because there's different ones, and some of them are worse than others. Um, And I say this in the nicest way, because FreeCycle is about uh, trading things that have value without charging for it. But the the level like um, I worked at this Kodak institution in the main coast. It was a wonderful experience, and um, it was crazy. And we had a, it was an educational institution. And by the time and we, people pay to come, right? And by the time I'd left, the catalog had a full page of things that people couldn't do practically because there've been so much. Like we had to spell out rules and so forth. And it, maybe we took the wrong. And now, and you know, with hindsight, I realize you do it the other way around. You say what's available, not what's forbidden. Completely. Um, but FreeCycle has that what's forbidden, but they have to because they have an unvetted group. It's open to everyone, and you have to abide by the rules. And they keep finding more things that people do. And the, and so you go to. I think the Seattle one is particularly draconian. You go there, and it's like I don't even want. I 
I can't even figure out if I'm allowed to post something here that yeah. fits within the rules. But you sidestepped, um, and you talk about, I mean, as, like Craigslist without creepy, and, and no knock on Craig Neymark. He's a great guy. I've oh, met him a number of times. Yeah. For, you know, but that was part of, I think, his accidental founding philosophy, which they've absolutely continued through to the present day, is that there are no strictures except on things that are abusive or illegal, really, you know, fraud and, and or people going off or whatever. But everything else is allowed. And it's turned into something that I find I never use Craigslist anymore because I don't find it trustworthy. So you've sort of gone inside and outside that is that you don't have to define as many rules when you have a community that self-selects. Because you have a community that self-selects, you've already excluded people or included people in the right camps. That seems very intentional to not try to sweep in the biggest possible web, the broadest possible thing. Yeah. Well, that's how we were organized in tribes, right? I mean, this goes back to our human history and our DNA is when you're in a tribe, when you're in a group of people that has circumscribed edges where you're accountable to one another, behavior is generally pretty good because you're accountable to someone. And if you fuck up, chances are someone's going to call you out. Um, And so that's what trust communities essentially bring to the the table is, you know, Craigslist, the organizing principle of Craigslist is location. So it's by city. That's not the way that we organize as humans. We organize around our community of faith. We organize around our kids' schools. We organize around our neighborhoods or the people that we share something in common with. So it's interesting with Ellie Blue's community, Wheel Women, um, you know, she has said that what makes that community work unquestionably is that you're only one person away from knowing some from knowing someone else you know that if you don't know the person who's asking or offering you know that you're one person away from knowing them and that sense of accountability is what yeah I mean I can't tell you how many demos I give of switchboard and the first question will be what if there's x post like when we were um, negotiating with Reed the question was what if someone posts an ask for an ecstasy orgy that was like the main concern of the administration. <laughs> and like, <laughs> there are two answers to that question. First of all, what if someone posted an ask for an ecstasy orgy? Like maybe there are three people that want to have an ecstasy orgy and that's what your community is saying it cares about. But, you know, secondarily to that, people haven't posted an ask for an ecstasy orgy. And it's because we model behavior and we see that what's going on there is not ecstasy orgies. What's going on there is a community of generosity and, um, you know, supportive altruism. And the ecstasy orgy post would look completely out of place and people would flag it and it would just be weird, you know. Uh, This reminds me of my uh, in-laws are Quakers and um, they were at a Quaker, they were at a friend's meeting um, back east uh, before they moved out to the West Coast and you know, there's silent meditation is one thing. And then there's one where you, you, when as the spirit moves, you stand up, you say something and the community has sort of not strictures, but sort of trained around what people do. And there's, there's some not rules to it, but it's, you know, people share. And my father-in-law it aggravated him. There was one woman who used it as personal therapy mm-hmm. and it was sort of outside of the community boundaries, but because they're Quakers, they have rules and there are organizing committees, but it's very hard to tell that person not you know and so that's the it's not and it wasn't so egregious that it was really awful but it bothered him particularly but uh but you have to worry. There was a thing about outliers. And in the Quaker meeting, like anybody who went could come to the meeting, uh, even in that kind of thing, it was self-selected, of course. But even there, you're going to have outliers. Yeah. But because you're forming uh, in Switchboard, you choose very specifically what the community is about. And so is the process of people forming a community, how are invitations issued? How does the community expand without getting, you know, growing out of control or starting to pull in people who are, you know, more degrees away? Yeah. Um, you know, right now we're, we're kind of scaling it really slowly and we want to get as much information as we can. But what we're seeing is, um, you know, so the underlying belief about Switchboard is that human, well-connected human beings are actually doing the work of organizations. So previously, nonprofits and organizations and large institutions were responsible for organizing all the humans. And what we're seeing now is one well-connected person can build an entire community from scratch. I mean, the work that you do, the work that Andy does, the work that Rick Tarosi does here in Portland, the work that all the work that Ellie does, she's she is essentially running 
an institution <laughs> promoting bicycling and she's one woman. And I think that's the power of social media that we've seen is just the tremendous amount of, um, someone can be kind of so charismatic and magnetic that they can do the work traditionally of institutions. So the question now is how do we empower those people to build that community and just make it as easy as possible? So right now we're pairing with community builders, with people like Ellie, who have this huge pain point where they're used to making these one-off introductions in their email box and LinkedIn isn't doing it for them. Google Groups is too unwieldy. There's no way the network like this could be built on Twitter because like everyone that Ellie follows would have to follow everyone else and then you would create a... I mean, it's just... There's no way. Um, Facebook Groups is failing. Um, Facebook Pages is failing. And so it's like all of the technology is completely imperfect. Ellie has a job to be done she has a community that wants to be connected, and that's what those are the types of people that we're partnering with right now are people who, who have demonstrated the capacity to build community. Let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, 99designs. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you probably know that I was trained in graphic design and worked as a typesetter. I know how the field works. It's a process of exploration and creativity. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to work in when you're trying to create something that expresses an idea, a thought, or even concrete information in a graphic way. It's a means of communication. And there are many people who can design something effective for you. The trouble is trying to find the right thing that you need at the time you need for the price you want and get a consistent result. This is where 99designs offers a unique deal. They connect you with over 310,000 graphic designers in their worldwide network. They vetted these folks, and they know they do quality work, and they monitor them over time. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee on any work that you get through them, and they can help you get logos, websites, T-shirts, car wraps, anything that you can get designed, they can help you make a match. And you don't just get hooked up with one designer. Instead, you pick what you need, there's a flat price associated with it, and then designers compete for your business. They actually show you sketches and ideas or even completed work. You pick what you want and then you work through to completion with that designer. The whole thing takes a week, sometimes less, to get a high quality result from a professional designer, again, with this 100% money back guarantee. So you get a look at a lot of ideas, you don't have to contract with someone long term, and you get what you want. And if it doesn't work out, you've got a, a way out of that as well. This is what 99designs is doing. It's great for the designers to get this constant flow of work vetted through 99designs to help them. It's great for you because you know you're going to get a consistent result backed up by a guarantee, as well as having access to a huge number of people. People who otherwise would have to find one by one. It's a terrific site, a terrific idea, and it helps everyone involved. And to sweeten the deal, 99designs has a special offer for you, listener to The New Disruptors. If you go to their website, you can get a $99 power pack of services for free right now. Visit the URL 99designs.com slash disruptors. Now that's numeral nine, numeral nine, designs.com slash disruptors. And you'll be able to get that $99 power pack of services for free today. Give them a try and let them know we sent you. And now back to the podcast. Well, and you listed off there's um, so many inadequate community building tools. Like we're this far along on the internet and I feel like community is still very difficult to build because it's so much oriented around advertising. Completely. So, like Facebook, I think I've quoted this before on the show, but uh, I have a friend, uh, she was on the show before, Marisa McClellan, who uh, does food in jars. She's a canning preserving expert, speaks around the country and books and has a great site. And I think she has, it's 150,000 or 180,000 people, uh, you know, liked her her uh, Facebook page, she posted something recently and had 800, it was shown to 800 people. You know, it's completely broken because what they wanted to do, of course, is pay fifty hundred, five hundred dollars $500 to reach all of her people. But then because the incentive is that way, people on their timeline are only seeing things that are promoted to them particularly. And then if they go to the group, so that means instead of like, instead of surfacing from the group, so I belong, if I'm, I'm, I do like her page, I have to go to her page now to see everything that's there, which defeats the purpose of me having joined it in the first place that I have to go to a page. Right. And all this orientation, you know, Twitter, Twitter, despite its advertising and sponsorship focus, like I don't see that as much, but you can't build a group there because it's impossible to be exclusive. And exclusivity is often seen as a undesirable trait when you're trying to sell, um, or is an undesirable trait when you're trying to sell to an audience. Like you want demographics, but you don't want exclusivity because it reduces the reach of what you're doing. Right. So in your case, your orientation is outside because it's outside of advertising. 
And because it's um, – you're not in a model where you're trying to restrict what people see. You're trying to make as many interconnections within a group as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, right now Jonathan Harris talks about this in his essay, you know, where he talks about technology as medicine and kind of the the user is the product right now. Our attention is the product. And so, so long as technology is built around this orientation of capitalizing on our attention. Yeah. It, communities will not be built and you will have the frustrations that you have and Ellie will have the frustrations that she has, you know? So the question becomes, you, you, we have to shift our orientation completely and say, what are we building here? Like, what are our values? Who, who do we want to reward? Um, and it's, I just don't, I feel like these questions have to be asked of technology. You know, I kind of liken it to the questions that we started to ask, we've started to ask around food. So, you know, these questions, who made it? Who profits and how does it make us feel? Those are the three questions that the local food movement started to ask when it came to, you know, eating at McDonald's and things like that, eating at large change, at large change. And it wasn't saying um, one is good or bad. It was simply saying bring a sense of mindfulness to what you're consuming. And that's kind of what we're trying to say. So I think, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Well, and I'm curious about the growth of the business too, is because I don't see, there is no, there's no obvious revenue stream at the moment to me from what you're doing. And, and, uh, you know, obviously there either, either have to be, just convert yourself to a nonprofit and work with foundations, or you have to have a revenue stream. So this is the thing that navigating this position is the thing that causes so much trouble for companies. And, um, what was the group that shut down? Was it front porch or backdoor? The neighborhood, there was a neighborhood site. I forgot what it's called. And then it become huge, but it became unsustainable. They couldn't, I think they were doing a little bit of advertising. Uh, and they, um, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of it. I would belong to it. And it was useful. We'd tell I could punch in your address and it would tell you what was going on around you. You could get, um, we'd give you police blotter reports, fire engine calls, po- Craigslist postings, like everything in your neighborhood that they could organize around. Yeah. But it wasn't sustainable. They couldn't break that code. So, you know, given that you have all this trust invested in you and other networks that are these, this is a social network you're building of a sort. It's definitely a social network, but it's a very limited and specific one. How do you navigate into pulling in that, you know, turning on the revenue pipe within this structure? Yeah, we've been experimenting and we have, um, we do have revenue streams and I think it's, and they've been really illuminating experiments. So we have sort of two revenue streams. On the one hand, we sell a subscription to right now our beachhead communities are in higher education, but we just partnered with a corporation with um, Etsy is one of the first corporate communities that we're working with. So you have institutions, colleges, universities, companies, they share this problem of wanting to build corporate culture and community. And so they're willing to pay a subscription to have access to our software because it's ad-free, it builds their community, and then it does something else, which is it makes them money. So right now we're building in essentially donation points throughout Switchboard. So you can imagine, you're a student, you post an ask for a job, you graduate, you get a job. Switchboard has a system where you report a success Mm -hmm. and let the community know that you found what you've needed. In that moment, when you're reporting a success, it makes a lot of sense for Reed to say, hey, consider giving back to the Reed Network. Mm -hmm. So instead of this model of nonprofits sending you an empty envelope every year and expecting you to give, you've now aligned the value that you've received from the network with what they want from you. And so that's we're seeing that to be like a very powerful revenue stream on the subscription side of things. And then in terms of the revenue stream for someone like Ellie... Um, we are experimenting with all different sorts of possibilities, but those are, we're seeing a lot of really interesting traction. The first is um, people can promote their posts. So if you post an ask or offer and you just want more eyeballs on it, mm-hmm. you can just bump it to the top and pay. Interesting. So that's completely working. Um, we've also seen Ellie has a huge network of vendors who want to share offers. But instead of it being something like Yelp or Google AdWords, where it's just this free for all, since Ellie is essentially the hostess of this dinner party, she can curate who those vendors are who are purchasing advertising on her site because they're trusted by Ellie and it makes intuitive sense for those vendors to be advertising. So it's it's just a lot more kind of like intimate and intuitive. It's not just this free for all. Have you gotten a pushback about promoted asks? I would think that that might be 
or promoted offers. People are promoted, or you can promote both. But you kinds. can promote anything. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. but I mean, that would be like that. Of course, that was the thing. Like when Twitter started offering, like when social networks introduced a way to push something to the top of the queue. What was the response to it? Well, the thing is, is the person who's promoting it is already a member of the community. You know, so they well, it's not an outside. Right, it's not it's like not advertising. An out, yeah, it's, it's not it's an outside native. advertiser. Right. Yeah, and I mean, native advertising sounds weird. It's more just like. You know, let's say I'm coming through Chicago and I urgently need a place to stay. I want as many people to see that as possible. So I'm going to promote it for, you know, however X dollars because that will be so much more affordable than me getting a hotel room. So if I'm able to post an ask for a host in Chicago and find what I need, the value to me is huge if I find what I need through that promoted post. Oh, that's hilarious. And it makes sense. And this is the problem. You know, one of the Craigslist problems as it grew even years ago was the minute you get beyond a certain scale. Like we, we used to sell furniture. My wife and I were selling old furniture off or whatever we put it up and it would slowly you know scroll down during the day and, and people would find it and then it got to a point where it was just like a fire hose and yeah like, so what do you do when you have a fire hose they would split it into smaller pieces and eventually it's like well the value of craigslist is not that it's in small regional pieces like it sweeps in an area and if you have to subdivide so much that people are only looking at certain places or have to look everywhere it's not helpful either but because you're self-defining a community that helps. I mean, this this leads me, of course, to the question of how big should a community be? Could a community be? That's, you know, I don't think there's a number. It's funny. Um, I've been really influenced by a lot of urban planning books. There's this book called A Pattern Language. and it I talks- was just going to, I was just <laughs> looking up on the, secretly on my browser while she was talking, folks. I was just looking at, what was the name of that book? I swear to God. Seriously? I just, yes. I was just about to Here, say, the, is that like, great alignment. is that, yeah, the, how big can a country be? How big can a political unit be? It starts with that, right? Completely. Yeah. So Christopher Alexander <laughs> talks about this idea of how, you know, like a, they're trying to segment people into groups of like 7,000. I Mm-hmm. I think that was his number. And I don't think there's a, that number makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think there's a magic number. I think what we're seeing is you can have a very small community that's high transaction. So for example, a Montessori school, tiny community, but they are high transaction because it's asks and offers for rides and snowsuits and craft supplies and volunteers. Then you can have a much larger community like Reed where it's, you know, 20,000 alumni and students. And there's maybe 15 or 20 posts every day. So it's totally a manageable amount. So, yeah, I think what we're seeing is you definitely need this element of trust. And so the, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't think that there's a magic number because the Reed community is 20,000 people. Of those, we have about 25% who've opted into Switchboard, which is pretty remarkable. That's, yeah, that's astonishing. Uh, yeah, in less than a year. And then of those, you know, you just go there when you need something and when you have something to offer. So it's not like there are now three, there aren't 3,000 posts every day, you know. Um, so yeah. Well, like self-limiting, of course, because people aren't always, and I mean, does this get used for things like, you know, I've got furniture or oh is God, it, anything. so it's anything, anything that ask and offer. So it's, I have, I have, uh, want to teach meditation. I'm offered to, uh, have you come to a meditation class? Completely. I mean, there is, um, I brought an example actually, cause I have some favorite posts that I will sometimes like reference. Let's see if I can. I bring it. Yeah. So, you know, this is another idea that Christopher Alexander talks about in a pattern language, the notion of how important it is to have intergenerational contact. Yes. Old people and young people, right? When you look at the internet, where are the old people? Like, where, where are they? They're like, this to me is one of the greatest losses because I've been so impacted and mentored by people who are in their sixties and seventies and eighties who feel completely isolated by the internet. And so, um, this is kind of a post from Reed switchboard. So this is Nancy class of 1973. Mm -hmm. So not a digital native. She's posted an offer for five volumes of Virginia Woolf. I will trade for an afternoon of help with random chores or an original artwork or best offer. Oh my gosh. So that's how she's used it. And then you have a success story. David chimes in a couple days later, class of 16, you know, so they're separated Mm -hmm. by decades. I received the collection for an original collage and short story of mine. I had a fine cup of coffee with Nancy and conversation, and I look forward to reading these texts. Oh, so that's wonderful. I forget that. So you have a closure thing. You want people, how did this transaction go? How did this ask and offer pairing work out? Exactly. So this to me is what I want the world to be, Mm -hmm. is this sense where Virginia feels moved to offer in this way. David feels moved to respond. And now you have an intergenerational friendship that was it could have it, there was no other place for this type of thing on the internet you know so yeah people and i think that's the other thing that we're seeing is very often institutions and organizations will try to do all of this crazy programmatic bullshit of like 
let's make a program for this and a mentorship program for this and an advisee program for this and an extradition program for this. Like, how could you ever create a program to swap the collection of Virginia Woolf for an original short story? So the notion is instead of anticipating and artificially constructing what your community needs, Mm -hmm. you completely flip it and say, I'm here to serve my community however it needs to be served. Right. That's so. fantastic. Well, this is one of the things that I've liked about Twitter as a thing. And I, I see elements of it here, too, is because Twitter, uh, you don't get vetted on Twitter, but because you have follow followers and blocking, that you can actually construct a community. And so I've made, uh, I am 46 now, and I have a ton of friends who are um, much younger and somewhat older. So Twitter, I think, encourages people who are, I know a lot of people in their 50s on it, fewer in their 60s and beyond, but I think it's familiar enough for people who were raised on earlier generations mm-hmm. of networking and BBSs and so forth. So people, and because when I was a kid, when I was in my teenage years, there were guys in their 30s and 40s doing BBSs. This is a natural extension. I've even found some of them again after 30 years, like, oh, we're on Twitter, of course. We don't need this BBS yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it fosters this, um, it breaks down the walls of communication. And because you can intermediate it a bit, you can say, oh, this person is bugging me. I'm going to block them or I'm unfollowing them. I'm not going to listen to them in my feed anymore. Right. But then you get vetted. So there's people I've met because they're friends of friends or friends of friends of friends. Uh, and they have seen my interaction among a group of people and I've seen theirs. So I'm like, this is a good egg because I know they're part of it, but that's an an implicit thing. You go a step further to make it explicit and also reduce the noise at the same time. But the intergenerational part, I would never have thought of that as something that you were facilitating, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't mean to say there aren't older people on Twitter, but I think what we're hearing is you have to, you have to first master the tool Mm -hmm. and then you find, you hit pay dirt and you find all of the, (laughs) all of these interactions you're talking about, right? But so um, our site is incredibly simple. It's like a bicycle. And in fact, um, it wasn't informed by it at the time, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture has this website called HayNet. The idea is that there's only two things you can do on HayNet. It it came about because there was a hay shortage in middle America a couple years ago. Uh, Two buttons, need hay, have hay. And that's it. Wonderful. So we basically unknowingly replicated that for any community. And so when older people come to our site, the first thing they say is, it's, you just press one of those buttons and you're on your way. Whereas with Twitter, you know, it's like, again, this, the learning curve of mastering the tool and getting the followers. And there's a lot that you have to do if you're a 75-year-old who's coming into that space versus here, you know, it's very, very simple and intuitive. That makes a ton of sense, right? And the hay net is was there's a situation of need because if you have too much hay, you have to dispose of it. You have to do something with it. But um, this is a lighter need situation, but it's people being frustrated with their ability to match that up. And it's also that thing. It's like I find the reason we use Craigslist often was it wasn't that we needed to make money off something. It was we wanted to get rid of something in a way that we knew – uh, like there's an arbitrage factor. We didn't want someone to get something from us cheaply and then resell it. We wanted someone who was actually going to use it to get it from us so we didn't feel like we were part of another commerce stream. Right. So you set a price, not because, so, you know, it's like, all right, sell this for $20, but the $20 is to deter people who don't actually need it as opposed to make $20. I mean, $20 is nice, don't get me wrong, but, you know, if it's a $200 item and you're selling it for $20, you're not really recouping anything. You're just trying to deter people who are whatever. This is a different situation. Does everything have to be, uh, value free or no, so it can be you can describe the value cars they've sold that's bikes great. so that's the thing is you don't dictate what it is or is not um, because there are just these two buttons of ask and offer so I've, I can't tell you how many times I've just been completely astonished at what people have asked and offered. I mean, um, we have a switchboard for the Portland Meat Collective, which is a group of farmers. So they're offering, you know, 12 meat rabbits, a quarter of, of beef, uh, hams for the holidays. And so you've created a marketplace where now farmers who have locally raised sustainable meat can reach the customers who want to buy it. So that's, I would never would have anticipated that switchboard would be used in that way. But the incredible thing is their prices, when you price them out, it's like $5 a pound for beef, which is half of what it is at Whole Foods. And you're buying direct from the farmer. So you're cutting out the middleman, you're building community, you're helping local farmers, you're finding locally raised sustainable meat. I mean, it's like a win-win and because what it's doing is it's creating an ecosystem. And that's really what we're trying to do. And this, I feel, is the central... It's like our great challenge, right? Because so much of disruptive technology right now is obliterating ecosystems. So you look at things like Uber and Soylent, 
and they're disruptive because they come in and they break things. That's the, that's the root of, dis- of disruption, right? But what they're breaking is they're taking this entire life cycle and ecosystem out of transactions. And that to me is the most depressing thing. You know, when, when we were raising money and looking for investors, I remember this one investor breathlessly told me, you know, so we're just really excited to invest in, in like things we would use. So we just invested in a company where, you know, it turns out with restaurant delivery, you don't even need a restaurant. You just need a factory, like an industrial kitchen that creates restaurant quality food. And then you just deliver that to people in their homes. And I was like, like my jaw <laughs> hit the floor. Because for anyone who's ever been to Portland, our entire economy rests on restaurants and locally raised food and food carts. And this is how immigrants make a living here. And I mean, it's like on and on and on. These No, we could just cut out all the we'll jobs and restaurants and experience and people. And, and like the feeling of what it feels like to go into a restaurant and have a conversation, unexpected conversation, yeah. and build a relationship with your bartender and have that anchoring business in your neighborhood. I mean, it's an an entire ecosystem of people who suddenly are quote unquote disrupted. And that to me is not, I don't think that's why we were put on this earth is to cut all of those people out. There's also one of my problems with Uber or the concept of that kind of ride sharing. It is not necessarily what they're doing is wrong because the taxi system in most cities is, is either corrupt or the result of corruption. And, and so even places where you could say the taxi commission and everything else is completely squeaky clean now, it's the result of the mob. It's the result of political machines. It's the result of bribery and patronage. So these all the taxi commissions come out of traditions of corruption even if they are not corrupt today. So that's wrong and bad and could be solved. And cabs is a scarce resource. That's also a problem. The drivers are also screwed in the system. Like everyone is screwed except the people who own medallions or have specific you know, things, and they're at the top of the heap. So you could say that problem could be solved, and Uber solves some of that problem. The problem is it gives no safeguards to the workers. So Uber doesn't have employees, and drivers can be kicked out arbitrarily. And because there's no regulatory structure under which they're given any redress, however inadequate it may be in some cities, they – are, when they're kicked out, they're gone. They can't drive Uber anymore, and they'll never be allowed to drive Uber again. And I think about that with the restaurant thing. It's like, well, maybe you could say, well, restaurants are, in, you know, for delivery, it is inefficient. Restaurants don't always want to do delivery, and they don't want to tie into these new systems. So maybe there should be room for, uh, you know, a giant windowless buildings in which restaurant quality meals are made and delivered. Like, yeah. maybe that's a thing, right? But those people, then because there's no community, there's no loyalty, and all the people who work there are interchangeable cogs, even more so than in most restaurants. And they lose that assurance that they have a future right. because it's, it is a giant machine crunching people out. And it's sort of the, it seems to be like the polar opposite, the exact other end of what you're trying to do in creating community that, that brings people, whether they're in physical proximity or in like intellectual proximity together to make things happen and to foster and sustain. Yeah. I mean, the more interesting thing to me is what if someone posted an ask because they needed a ride? And that's, in fact, happened all the time on Switchboard. Mm-hmm. Someone will just post and ask that they need a ride. There's no financial, uh, you know, iPhone, Uber, map tracking. <laughs> you know, there was a kid who was offering rides um, at Reed around Thanksgiving, for, and it was pay what you want. And I, and so, you know, this was how he was putting himself through schools. He was driving people, um, to the airport around the holidays and I paid him a hundred dollars. Like I paid him way more than I ever would have paid an Uber because there was like a door to my heart that opened being a mixed car, you know, like listening to the Smiths talking to this kid who's a biochem major about how this is how he's paying for college. Like there are so many levels of generosity that we need to access through our hearts and not through our wallets. In fact, we don't access them through our wallets. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about things like Uber. And I think ultimately, and at the end of the day, we just have to ask like, what do we sacrifice when we do this? Mm-hmm. What, who are we cutting out and what are we losing? Right. And is that the world that we want to live in? And that's how we, you know, when we make those choices, we're exercising that that's the world that we want to live in. So, Well, I'd, I'd like to finish on one thing, too, which is about um, reputation, because that's part of it. So, uh, so much of social networks has to do with how you manage, and especially social networks involve commerce or transactions, mm-hmm. how you manage things. And I've often defined, when I talk about the sharing economy, whatever kind of thing it is, it's two-way reviews. 
And um, like Uber, Uber right. has it, but we don't see it. They don't expose the driver can see our rating. We can we can't see the driver's rating, but Uber has that. And Airbnb, it's explicit, goes both directions. You can see ratings and responses, and that helps. And then you tie in your Facebook account into to Airbnb, and you can see if your friends have stayed. That your friends recommend, right? So you get this artificial creation that is not intentional in the way that you build yours. But reputation is always a part of it. I thought that reputation is what's made peer-to-peer economy grow, mm-hmm. for sure, and this sort of larger sharing economy as well. Reputation requires being honest in reputation. Like the, my aunt's comment, I would never post – actually, I didn't post about the Airbnb yeah. review, and I would never – I'm saying it publicly because no one knows what I was saying. <laughs> won't, get, won't get back to her. And she'll take care of the ants. But, um, but if I were in a private setting among friends, in a place that I know no one else can access because the community is closed, only those people have been invited – I can be more frank, mm-hmm. and I, but frankness also carries a cost. There's hurt feelings. There could be lawsuits, you know, it, whatever, especially in companies if they talk about employees or however it works out. How do you manage issues of – or do you even need to be involved with managing or setting tones for issues involving people um, – talking about reputation. I mean, there's no scoring, you know, I can tell from yeah. this, there's no scoring system in your world, but, um, but does reputation come up as a component or is that since you've created an explicit community, does reputation become a purely implicit thing that does not need to be managed at every level, either in posts or by people or anything else? Yeah. I mean, like I fundamentally believe that people can manage themselves and all of this rating badges, you know, reward gamification of human behavior is a little bit tedious to me. I think that people are actually pretty good. And what we've seen time and time again with Switchboard is if anything, um, you know, I'm trying to think about like, what are the issues that I can't even think of examples. I think that, you know, Marcel Mouse and the gift talks about our ability to give and receive and reciprocate. And um, I think if there's any quote unquote, like, you know, if there are any tricky interactions, what we've heard of, I guess, is that it comes from people that are just waiting to be thanked. So someone will post and oh, ask. yes. They'll get what they need. And then the way that you close out that interaction is, you know, in the past you wrote a thank you note or you just acknowledged that gesture of kindness. And we've had a couple of grouchy people um, say, you know, like, where I'm just – they never followed up. Mm-hmm. You know, the young person never followed up or – I, I never was thanked. And that to them is just kind of hurtful. And and it I think it forces us to call on our better angels and realize that those types of gestures of gratitude and civility need to come back. And it's not just favoriting someone's tweet. It's actually taking the time to write them a note or follow up with them or, you know, have them be a part of your life in some way. So it's asking for a little bit more commitment in our relationships, which I think is good, you know. So yeah, the reputation systems, I, I honestly don't understand it. I think there are ways to teach strangers about other people. Yeah. You know, we didn't need reputation systems. The reputation system was what your neighbor said about you. The reputation system was how was, was completely transmitted in your behavior and your actions. And that to me is so much more powerful than whether you have 37 gold stars and endorsements. It's, you know, if I see someone on read switchboard, let's say help another student out, it speaks so much more to their character and who they are in that one gesture of generosity than if they had 37 badges. That doesn't mean anything. So to us, it's really just about, like, what are you actually doing? How are you actually helping other people? Um, And, yeah, that to me is is more interesting. I recommend reading Laura Ingalls Wilder's The Long Winter (laughs) for for more (laughs) on that subject. Also, you can see the genesis of libertarianism as defined by her daughter is expressed in that book as well. But also uh, concepts of self-sufficiency but also generosity. It's a very interesting examination of what happens when everyone's pushed to the limits of uh, starvation. Uh, It's like a – I mean it's a Pacific Northwest idea, you know, like the potlatch and this concept of the potluck and how – leaders were judged by how much they could give away. Mm-hmm. That's a completely foreign idea to us right, right now, given, given the current culture that we'll, we're in. But um, like a lot of, uh, lately I've been reading a lot about servant leadership, Robert Greenleaf's ser- servant leadership. Oh. I don't know if you anything about it, but I mean, fundamentally what he talks about is um, that our highest calling is to serve one another. And we feel most alive when we're useful to other people. And so 
you know, you look at what exists currently exists in social media and there just aren't enough opportunities to actually be useful to one another, not to promote our ego and our past accomplishments and our preferences and the articles that we find funny, but to actually put ourselves aside for a minute and serve a larger purpose. Um, and I think that's actually what we're all looking for <laughs> is this sense of wanting to be useful. And, um, yeah, so anything that we can do on the internet to promote that, which I think is our deepest desire. I'm all for. <laughs> well, people can go to switchboardhq.com and suggest a switchboard. Yeah. And then you will, you will evaluate and create one for them ostensibly. Yes. They can create one themselves. And then, oh, good. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So, so switchboardhq.com. Mata, thank you for uh, having me over to your, to your luxurious adjunct offices Completely. here and, uh, and talking on the podcast. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.